Hey guys, this is Doug. Thanks for listening to What's the Hazard. I want to recognize our incredibly generous sponsors, Cheyenne Wolford of Custom Concrete Specialists, John Fallowich, Fallowich Construction Services, Jim Cover, Nebraska Department of Labor On-Site Consultation Group, Danny Arroyo, WorkSafe Consulting, and Building Omaha, a collaboration between the Nebraska Electrical Contractors Association and the IBEW. Thank you, one and all. You are true believers in workplace safety and health, and I appreciate you. All right, let's get into today's episode. Hey, guys, this is Doug. Welcome back to What's the Hazard? What day is it? It's Friday. What's the date? The 4th, November 4th. I usually write that stuff down beforehand, but um, I have an, a guest today that I've been really looking forward to, man. Uh, we, um, I'm going to give a little bit of back context, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, Dustin. Dustin Talaco, um, Talaco Safety Solutions is the company. We were on a program together probably three or four weeks ago. It was uh, Encore Safety Network, Ellerbrock Norris program. And I gave my usual lackluster presentation on OSHA stuff. Um, and then after lunch, you came out and they introduced you and you did. You're fine, man. Don't worry about it. You're As a paramedic, you probably have to be on call. <laughs> That's cool, man. Do not sweat that at all. Um, and you gave a presentation. Uh, your Your company deals primarily with traumatic incident response. So um, you talk about. You have a program that we're going to talk about called Stop the Bleed. I noticed on your website you talk about things like uh, cardiac arrest, drowning, traumatic incident response. And you are um, also a paramedic on the Omaha Fire Department, which I found fascinating. And so you talked about this program, Stop the Bleed, traumatic bleeding. In our world, in the industrial world, we're talking about things like amputations and other traumatic injuries, and you're talking about things as well, like gunshots, knife wounds, accidents, car vehicle accidents, whatever it might be where there is significant bleeding and the importance of addressing that bleed. And, and I sat there, your presentation was excellent, and I sat there just mesmerized, man, and you did a, the training was excellent, the material was really relevant and important, and I thought, Everybody needs to hear this. And I would assume you think that same thing. But in my opinion, everybody needs this information. If you've got first responders in your facility, whether you that be uh, general industry or construction, first aid CPR people need this training. And so when I asked you if you would come and talk about it, and you were very willing to do that. It's obvious that you're very passionate about this stuff. So I, I talk a lot like this. And so, so I'm going to shut up. If you wouldn't mind, just talk a little bit about you, your you, your background, how you became a paramedic, and then how this company came to be. Yeah, so uh, I'll take a breath. I uh, know you're good. Uh, I'm Dustin Talaco, firefighter paramedic with Omaha Fire. I work on a really busy medic unit up in Northeast Omaha, up on 45th and Lake. So uh, we run about 4,500 calls annually. About a third of those are mine. We deal with everything that you can imagine, major trauma. Um, I've always been a huge planner, kind of a huge prepper, and um, I was on Medic 21 up on 34th and Ames um, back in like 2015. I was a new medic, and it was about lunchtime, and we got dispatched out. I, it was May, I want to say it was May 20th, 2022, we got dispatched out for a shooting, and we go in route, and I can't say any details about the call just because of HIPAA, but um, it was a uh, 
Officer Orozco. So we transported Officer Orozco. So that, that was a very busy week for us. We had, I think, seven or eight shootings that week. U.S. Marshals ended up having to come in, do a racketeering clause that hasn't been done in Omaha since the mob days. And they arrested a bunch of guys, got a bunch of guns off the streets. And I realized at that point that we live in a pretty volatile community, whether people believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I kind of made the decision in my brain that I need to become part of the solution. There's a major problem in the area. I just don't, didn't know what it was at that time. So fast forward, I I, I started grad school. I was working on a, a master's degree in public administration, emergency management. And my teacher on September 30th, I want to say, uh, I had the dates written down here because I always get my timeline mixed up. September 30th, 2017, <clears throat> said, we need you to create a SWOT analysis. So strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, right? I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do this on. Well, the very next day, October 1st, 2017, I turn on the TV and I'm like, holy cow. Was, you know what date that is? It was the Las Vegas shooting. Oh, yeah. 300 yeah. people injured in less than 10 minutes. Yeah. And I'm like, well, Incredible. obviously this is what I need to do my SWOT analysis on. On, yeah. on my ambulance in, in Northeast Omaha, I'm probably one of the more prepared squads in the area just because I was a klepto. I, I would make sure that <laughs> if there was, we had more than enough equipment. My yeah. other shifts are coming on. like, is there any need to have this much equipment? I'm like, Hey, you just, just never case. know. Yeah. And at that time, even as prepared as our squad was, we weren't prepared enough to even respond to like a small bus accident, you know, mm-hmm. not alone 300 people injured in less mm-hmm. than 10 minutes. So I said, this is what I'm going to do my SWOT analysis on. But if I'm going to be doing it for class, I might as well push it through with the city. So basically what I did is I went to my chief and I asked for help and I said, Hey chief, uh, this is what I kind of like what I'd like to do. And he's like, well, I don't know if the department's going to go for it. He said, try sending an official letter through the chain. So I sent everything with the fire department's bureaucratic. It's you have that chain of command. I sent an official letter requesting to, to, um, get equipment, and I wanted 12 decompression needles, 12 occlusive dressings, 12 tourniquets. I wanted all this equipment and a cache of like a bag mm-hmm. that would be left on triage zone. And so the, the email comes back and they said, uh, we can't do that. Um, if we do that for your ambulance, we're going to have to do it for all the ambulances in the city. So I'm like, well, I don't, this is kind of frustrating. Well, I just, so what I did, the old Johnny Cash song, I took it one piece at a time. Mm-hmm. I just started doing it under the radar with mm-hmm. the organization. I'd send in an order, um, which was fine to get two tourniquets, two pressure bandages, two decompression needles uh, every couple of weeks. And then over the course of like six to eight weeks, I built this kit. Mm-hmm. Well, my chief was up one day, he goes, um, I said, Hey chief, just, I want you to know this bag, this cache of equipment's on this squad, because if we get another multi-shooting, which we do a couple times a year, mm-hmm. that this equipment's on here, he goes, wow, this is great. We should do this for all the squads. <laughs> I go, well, I tried that. I already proposed it, that. It didn't work out. So he goes, well, how serious are you about this and how important is it to you? I go, it's important chief. Everything selfishly, the reason I'm in this space is to make the community safer for my daughters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's my whole motivation with everything I do. And, and I said, it's pretty important chief. I, you know, I, I want to try to, I feel like I'm putting forth this effort and this energy. I want to be able to, to help our community. So he said, well, here's what we're going to do. And he helped me basically formulate a letter through the chain of command, giving them three presenting the problem. Um, so I said in the wake of the Las Vegas shooting, I feel like we are negligent. He goes, 
hold on, take that word negligent out of there. They're never going to go for that. <laughs> right, right. All right. So in the wake of right. Las Vegas shooting, I feel like we were ill prepared yeah. for an event like the Las Vegas shooting. And the three simple solutions were, we're going to use city budget. If that doesn't work out, we'll hit up our 501c3 that we partnered mm -hmm. with the First Responders Foundation. And he said, you cannot give them any way out. So the third option was, he said, you're going to have to be willing to do this. I will go out and fundraise. So that's what I did. The letter went through. <clears throat> I didn't hear anything for quite some time. So this was this was October 1st, um, 2017. Then October, November, December hits. Finally, I'm just like, you know what? I give up. There's nothing I can. You know, I can't force them to get involved. Um, I can only control the bubble around me. So I just tried <laughs> to keep keep our squad prepared. <clears throat> so next thing you know, first of the year hits, February 4th, 2014 happens. Um, about, I can't remember what time of the day it was, but I get a frantic call from a chief. He goes, hey, Dustin, uh, you buy a TV? I go, yeah. He goes, flip on the TV. He said, where are we at, by the way, on these kits? And I turn on the TV, Parkland, Florida school shooting. I go, what do you mean where we're at? Like, you guys haven't given me permission to do anything yet. And he goes, if I can get you permission by the end of the day, can we get going on this? I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. And so it wasn't an hour. It went mm -hmm. up to the mayor's office back down and they gave me permission to do it. So wow. um, under like under the umbrella of my, my fire union, which they were fantastic, Trevor Towie and those guys, they helped kind of give me that platform. We mm -hmm. went out and fundraised $25,000. We basically built these kits that I was envisioning and we basically put them um, in 16 ambulances, seven paramedic or one paramedic shift supervisor rig, and then seven battalion chief rigs. We had about 2,500 to $3,500 left over. The, what the public generally doesn't realize in an active shooter situation, the fire department cannot enter until that scene is deemed secure. So the right. national average is 12 and a half to 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. The stop the bleed curriculum that I talked mm -hmm. to you guys the other day mm -hmm. will tell you that you can bleed to death in less than three minutes. Yeah. So I'm not good at math, but the math is going to tell you, you're going to be a long let out before the paramedics get to your side. Right. So I'm like, all right, how do I bridge that gap between the time of injury and the time paramedics can get to the side? I said, well, the only next thing that we can do is get them into the police officer's hands, right? Mm -hmm. They're going in to isolate mm -hmm. eliminate that threat. <clears throat> so I, I hit up Chief Smotter and Tony mm -hmm. Connor. Tony Connor is the union president. Smotter is the chief, uh, yeah. chief. Yeah. I asked them, I said, will you match the money that's left over? And they go, absolutely. I'm like, oh, really? Is that easy? And they're like, yeah. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we did it. We built like kits minus the decompression needles because it's not mm -hmm. in their scope. Mm -hmm. And we basically had um, all this equipment put on the sergeant vehicles i said which vehicles are guaranteed to be at a mass yeah event, mass shooting and they said probably the sergeant vehicles so we did that once we were getting ready to announce it to media smarter came up to me said dustin i appreciate what you've done this is fantastic for the city of omaha but i want you to know realistic expectations <clears throat> our officers are trained to walk through that front door step over somebody that's bleeding to death and ask them for help to go isolate and eliminate that threat so sure the equipment's going to be on scene but we're not bringing it in with us. <clears throat> and that was my aha moment. I'm like, well, I've got to get equipment into public facilities, churches, school districts, because mm -hmm. we need to be able to self-rescue. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. That was the formulation of Tlaco Safety Solutions. I, now I build these mass casualty kits that go in public facilities next to AEDs and strategic locations. And it's uh, it's been an uphill battle. A lot of people look at me cross-eyed when I start talking mm -hmm. about, oh, excuse me, bleeding control what? What are you mm -hmm. selling in? What? Why yeah. do we need that? Oh, yeah. And uh, so 
but it, I'll tell you, we're in most of the school districts in the area. And Good. It's um, it's very important that we start getting. This oh out. man, very. Oh man, good for you. That's amazing because it's obviously it was based on your passion and your vision, pushing, 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 and having been in a bureaucratic system, I know that it's not easy to continue to push when you're meeting that resistance. So good for you. Um, I also want to say, and I was thinking about this on the drive over, you know, as an OSHA guy, we, we investigated workplace fatalities, workplace accidents, but we were never on scene for the incident. It was always after the fact. And so we were working from either photographs taken by the sheriff's department or the police department or the fire department, perhaps, and interviews and things, which was traumatic enough, you know, um, to be a first responder. Um, I just want to say thanks to you and all of the guys and gals that do that. Um, it, it takes an, really an incredible set of stones to be able to go on scene into that type of trauma, into that type of chaos and provide assistance. So sincerely, thank you to you and all the folks that do that. It is amazing. We're grateful. I know, you know, the people that I, that I, that are important to me, we're grateful that you do that. Um, how did, how did you become a paramedic? How did you know that this was what you wanted to do? I really did. And I, I started uh, working with Omaha beef football right out of high school. I kind of worked my way through the chain of command, took over as general manager the year I graduated college. So <clears throat> working in a completely different world, right? Mm -hmm. Minor league sports. But with minor league sports comes minor league pay. I just didn't make that great of <laughs> right. money. So I had somebody sure. come up to me one day and they're like, you should try out for the fire department. This would be a good deal for you. And I thought to myself, I'm like, well, maybe I don't, but I don't know. Like, I, I don't know if I could sit or, sit in the station for 24 hours. I think I'd get bored. Well, knowing what I know today, <clears throat> this is the best job in the world. I mean, you can mm -hmm. do a lot of cool things, training. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went through the testing process. I didn't put a whole lot into it. And I ended up getting a job offer back in 08, 08, 09, somewhere in there. And uh, this, one of the dumbest things I ever did is I turned the job down. I remember I was still living at home, working. I was the GM of the beef, still living at home, if that tells you anything. <laughs> right. Making like 30K a year. Right. And I go home and I told my mom, she started bawling. She says, I'll give it to you, kid. You got guts. And it wasn't six weeks I realized I made a big mistake. I turned mm -hmm. the fire department down to stay with the football team just because of my allegiance mm -hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but things work out for a reason. I'll tell you what, it took me another three to five years to even get back into an opportunity to get hired again. And I will never appreciate that job, this Omaha fire department mm -hmm. career. Then I, I will never appreciate it more than I do now Good, because it took me, I had to scratch and call out to get back there and, you know, mm -hmm. get into EMT class and firefighter one and paramedic. And so once I got in, I realized this is the best job in the world. I get paid to help people mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. that fight or flight that i used to be addicted to mm -hmm. when i was working game days and working fight night and boxing myself i mm -hmm. get several times a day yeah working on an engine or oh an yeah ambulance. you know we get get paid to, um we're one of two professions in life that you get paid to work out it's being a professional athlete or being a firefighter i mean mm -hmm. we have no excuses we have weight rooms mm -hmm. in all of our stations yeah. um you can do as much or as little with the the career as you want. So it's, yeah. it's an absolute blessing for me. And, and it was the best. It, Mike McDonald that hired me is the best gift I've ever been given by anybody. Good for you. It's interesting that you say that because I think, you know, that, that retrospect, you know, when you turned the job down initially and then realized, I think that probably was where I'm supposed to be and then fought your way back. Obviously, you're a re resilient, determined guy. And even, even with the stop the bleed 
equipment and training. You're definitely a, uh, you know, you met a lot of resistance and a number of obstacles that you've overcome to get that done. And so public, public buildings, public settings, having that equipment there, do you also then, you provide the training then for people in those environments? We do. So here's kind of the backstory on, on the training. So Sandy Hook, the, the, everybody remembers the terrible Sandy Hook tragedy, which was we're here in December, December 14th. We're coming up on the 10 year anniversary. So that kid broke into the school, started wreaking havoc on, on those poor little kiddos. There was zero survivability from that event. There's 25 and six year olds and seven adults at Paris Sandy event. What happened with that event, once that shooter broke into the school and started shooting those kids, somebody activated the trauma team, just like they do in UNMC and Bergen here. They, they activate the trauma team. Specialists start coming down from all areas of the hospital. These specialists were waiting for multiple minutes. They're physically watching the events of Sandy Hook unfold on national mm-hmm. television. They waited and they waited and they waited. Unfortunately, they didn't accept one patient that day. Mm-hmm. Those poor little kids and teachers perished. And so Dr. Lenworth Jacobs, the trauma surgeon attending for that event, realized there's a, um, a real problem here. He mm-hmm. said, this is kind of similar to the early 1960s when we started CPR here in the United States mm-hmm. where we brought it to the hospital system. He said, we were saving people in the hospital system all over the, all over the world, really. But the general public really didn't know how to do it. So he said it was roughly 12 years later, circa like 1972, they created the American Heart Association. They trained roughly 250,000 people in a big initiative that year. And it just snowballed. To said, do CPR. To do CPR. He mm-hmm. said, that is our standard of care today. Right? Yeah. Most people know how to do CPR. So we need to do something similar to that. So, after the Sandy Hook tragedy, he got together with uh, with a really bunch of real smart doctors, which they met at today what is known as the Hartford Consensus. Okay. The American College of Surgeons created this canned course, this curriculum. It's a 90-minute course that we can cut down to 60 minutes every single day, and we're pumping it out over the all over the country. And this, this training is very rudimentary. Like, there is nothing crazy about it. However, like – looking back eight years ago in medic class, I was never once, never one single minute taught how to physically pack a wound. So that means like, if I have an area, like let's say my shoulder area, it's high enough. I can't get a tourniquet up there. That means there's only one thing you can do. If you hold pressure and pressure doesn't stop that bleed, we are physically going to pack that wound. And what that means is me taking my, my glove finger going in that wound in that penetrating trauma finding the pulsating artery and we're going to pack it with sterile gauze mm-hmm. what it really would you're basically happen. applying pressure internally internally i was never once taught how to do that in class now fast forward a couple weeks ago i'm down at king science center teaching a bunch of kids how to do it mm-hmm. it's the world we live in so mm-hmm. these skills are easy in concept some of them are like holding pressure externally or a little bit more um physical physically demanding mm-hmm. But it's a very perishable skill. And mm-hmm. once people sit through it, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And let me tell you, I, I trained all 800 MUD employees last year. And it's funny. My favorite part about this class is watching that buy-in. I have everybody. They you generally come in, and they're pissed off to be there. Oh, it's training. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, you can watch, right. oh, yeah. you can watch eye contact. Oh, a bunch, I know, man. A bunch of growly old men, right? Yeah. Eye contact, their, their body language, arms across. Some of them are just on their phone. And then I usually open with, the stop the bleed um sandy hook story Mm -hmm. and i say look i work in northeast omaha i deal with about as many gunshot patients as anybody in the tri-state area we deal with that 68111 68112 zip code Mm -hmm. we deal with this 
these skills, we, we do these skills and use this equipment way more on job related injuries and car accidents than we ever do on shootings. And we get a lot of shootings. You are more likely to use these skills and this equipment to save your own family out on the family boat, mm-hmm. camper, out camping, God forbid, wherever life takes you, where you need this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's at that point, I watch that by right in front of me. And then the first thing they do is they get on their phone and start saying, where do I get this equipment? And it's just that sales cycle over and mm-hmm. over again. It's uh, Stop the Bleed's a perfect loss leader for me. It's perfect infomercial. Mm-hmm. I go in and teach a lot of times and there's, and people don't, they don't realize they need our kits until they sit through the class. Mm-hmm. And it's uh it's fun. Um, but it's also scary too, because I'm into the, these businesses every single day. Like I, a couple months ago, I went to one of the fastest growing companies in the state of Nebraska and I had a meeting with the exact decision maker and I could see he's nervous, like mm-hmm. which I normally see mm-hmm. looking around. And when I get all done, he goes, oh, you know, I, this is, I can't say this is a bad idea. I think it's a really good idea, but I can't hang these kits on the wall. I can't have my employees thinking that we're that we're expecting just waiting for an incident and i said well with all due respect sir you have a fire extinguisher over Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. what's the difference Mm -hmm. i mean aed aeds you're not Mm -hmm. expecting sudden cardiac arrest right it's an insurance policy that's hanging on the wall that hopefully Mm -hmm. never gets used right you can't afford not to have it because as we talked about you can bleed to death in less than three i totally agree so in, in my opinion and so my reaction to the training was exactly the same. I, I didn't know what to expect. Now I enjoy training personally, so I didn't know what to expect, but the information was so compelling, the story and the reason for this training. I, I personally think, and this is just my opinion, um, in an industrial setting, which is where at my world, so either industrial cons- or construction settings, I think first aid, CPR, AED, and stop the bleed training should be mandatory. Now, whether you're able to, to provide it or not is kind of a good Samaritan voluntary thing. Not everybody is going to be capable in the moment to do it. Some people will panic. Some people will freeze. But I think everybody should have the training. Certainly, in, in most companies that I work with, they have first responders. They have designated some folks, supervisors, volunteers, to be first responders, to provide some first aid CPR until you guys can get there. And that's actually required by law. Um, Every business is expected per the OSHA regulations to be able to provide that initial first aid response until the professionals can get there. And there's like a three to four minute time frame. And as you described, within that three to four minutes, somebody that's had a traumatic injury can certainly bleed out and perish before you're able to get there and provide assistance. So I'm telling my clients as of last week, since I heard you speak, that they need to do this. Everybody needs to do this. And so you got a lot of work in, in the, store. The, the, the big, oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate the uh, voice of confidence. The, the big misconception from people I hear every day is, oh, I, I have bleeding control equipment in my, in my first aid kit. I'm going to put my life savings that you don't. Right. Now, at, you know better than me. OSHA, I believe, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe OSHA states that you need to have uh, medical equipment that matches up to the specific hazards in your industry. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. So it, you're working with sheet metal or whatever. I mean, those I've seen some really bad bleeds in, oh, in those situations. Oh, yeah. Most of these companies don't have tourniquets and no. not only do they not have them, they don't have the training and right. it's just uh, people are just 
scared to talk about it because their big their big misconception is they sit there and they're like, what what's the chance? And we call it that high risk, low frequency emergency, mm-hmm. right? Sure. What's the chances of me being in that high risk, low frequency uh, active shooter situation? Well, chances of that are slim to none. Hopefully, hopefully but you are more than likely to use this skill to save your coworker at work. Right. 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 So being the, the, but what we see in the school district and we see with the companies is time is very valuable. And I, it's just hard for employers to give us the 60 to 90 minutes. Now, it's would, not. So they think it's hard. They, you know, they all equate, you know, production and in, you know, income, uh, you know, the finances to the time, but the man, everybody's got 90 minutes. Every company that I work with has 90 minutes to spare. And so, you know, obviously they're just trying to prioritize things, but I don't think there's a greater priority than this truthfully. And can I tell you the number one feedback that I get from the class, everybody, you know, we, we hire all off duty paramedics that work on busy ambulances, in Northeast Omaha, they do these skills. So that brings that instant credibility. When mm-hmm. It in. does. But the number one complaint I get is I wish we had more time to practice these skills. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a direct right. result because that's all we are given. And, and right. so, like I said, this is a 90 minute curriculum, but a lot of times the employers and School districts are having us cut it down to 45 minutes. I feel like an auctioneer up there when I'm talking. It's just (laughs) so much information so fast. And then then furthermore, we add in some skills that are very important that the American College of Surgeons do not. So if you look at the data for active shooter scenarios, 50 to 65 percent of the injuries are thoracic in nature. 50 Mm -hmm, of those mm -hmm. active shooters. It's based off that sheer surface area, right, between belly button and the neck. That's where most of the injuries are at. But most of these public facilities, all they if they do get bleeding control kits, they're only getting tourniquets. Tourniquet, right. Well, Which is they, only good for your limbs. Yeah, they really. don't want to deal with expiring occlusive dressings. They want yeah. to say, I, I'm going to check the cheapest box possible that we have, quote-unquote, bleeding control trauma equipment. So they don't have the occlusive. So if you don't have occlusives, what we are concerned in the medical world about is what we call a tension pneumothorax. And mm-hmm. it's kind of a... Sounds like a uh, really complicated situation, but more or less the lung collapses and mm-hmm. puts pressure on the vena cava of the heart. Once there's pressure mm-hmm. on the vena cava of the heart, the blood pressure goes down. Once the blood pressure goes down, the only thing left to do is medics get on location. We take a, a 10 gauge decompression needle. It gets dropped in your chest. It lets all that pressure out. Mm-hmm. Well, as a civilian, you can't do that. What you need to do is prevent that whole cascade from even happening. Mm-hmm. The way you do that is by occlusive dressings. You're putting those stickers. Cover up that down. wound, that sucking yep. wound or and, whatever. And the stickers come in twos, right? For mm-hmm. entry and exit wound. Okay. Um, front and back. But most of the facilities don't have it. So what do mm-hmm. we do? So we teach that uh, improvise. So mm-hmm. what can you use? So one of the things I teach in the school districts and all these public facilities, I'm like, what do you have in your building that expire every two to four years that are created for people that are hairy, that are created for people that are diaphoretic and sweaty mm-hmm. that are made to, to stick and AED pads. Right? AED so pads. I always, when I'm teaching stop the bleed, I'm like, as a strategic planning group, please keep your AED pads, cut those wires off of them, use a Sharpie, right? Expired AED, use as occlusives and slide those in your trauma kits. Mm-hmm. Those work fantastic. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we teach too, that the American College of Surgeons do not because of the liability push are uh, improvised tourniquets. I'm a huge proponent of teaching improvised tourniquets. Now, mm-hmm. the College of Surgeons are, don't teach it because of that liability sure. push. Yeah. What their big push is, if, it's, if you use something less than two inches in width, you can cause tissue damage. Okay. I would rather have tissue damage than be bled out. Right. But 
and you have to know how to do it. But we have very simple ways to teach how to do it. So these are all skills that are in that class that are added above and beyond that existing curriculum. So what I'm saying is that 90 minutes is crucial. Yeah. When we start cutting into that, the, what gets cut out are the skills. And we want our customers to leave feeling competent that they mm -hmm. can do this. Yeah. And, and, and again, I, I think, my God, I think, you know, um, you, you commented on this, just personal um, exposures, well-beings, family members, friends, um, to have, maybe it seems uh, morose to have this equipment at home, but my God, if you were ever in need of something like this and didn't have it, I don't know how you could forgive yourself, right? So, um, and, and I uh, carry gloves in my car. I, rem I had to respond to kind of a first aid CPR incident one time personally and didn't have that. So I carry gloves in my car and there, everybody has gloves. Now we all bought tons of boxes mm. of gloves during the pandemic, you know, and so everybody's got gloves, but, and I, and I know that, um, oftentimes you had commented during your training that if you are smart enough, you're a, a gun owner perhaps, and you go get some training, typically you will have some exposure to the use of a tourniquet or something like that, which I think is ideal. You know, that the people that are training on how to use uh, guns, weapons safely are also talking about how to respond to those types of incidents. So those organizations are doing a little bit of this training, which is useful. Um, I, I watch some of those guys on YouTube. There's a, like a kind of a survival guy that I follow on YouTube and they talk about tourniquet use and, you know, how to obtain quality tourniquets and stuff. But you know, so from a personal standpoint, I think everybody owes it to themselves and their family to do this. But from a, a workplace standpoint, I think it's an absolute necessity, man. So um, before we go any further, just how do people get, how do people find you? You have a website that I thought was really good. They can purchase the equipment through you. They can get the training through you. Um, what, what's the website? It's uh, TalacoSafetySolutions.com. So it's my last name. So Okay. T is in Tom, A-L-A-C-K-O, then safety solutions. All one word. Yeah, all one word. Dot com. So Good. the important thing is whether it's me or it's somebody else, it's important that we get stop the bleed training in the public facilities and all these organizations. It doesn't have to be through me. Now, CHI, UNMC, and Children's all teach it. Okay. Problem is I, I talked to Scott Brown, the guy who runs it for CHI, a good buddy of mine. I said, Hey Scotty, how, how often are you guys out teaching? Cause we're out teaching it every single day that I'm out at the fire station. Mm -hmm. Even when I'm at the fire station, we have off duty guys doing it. And he goes, ah, it's not that much anymore. Maybe once a month. So either they're not getting hit up or they don't have the manpower to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why we're training. We, we train more than anybody in the state. I would imagine. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, um, they can reach out to us on the website or we, I, people contact us all different routes. They, they call mm -hmm. the fire department and mm -hmm. ask if they teach it and they don't. So they refer them to me. They refer them to, so they would yeah. get referred to you if yeah. they go through the fire department. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so what are the, you do other things as well? You guys are doing like drowning. AED, what, what do you, what people, what should people know about drowning? Well, or? So I, I, basically the biggest thing, like everything I do started with bleeding control. So mm -hmm. one of the, with drowning, I'm like, well, we go down to the Ozarks a lot. And mm -hmm. if you've been to the Ozarks, you know that oh, yeah. by, by water, you might be a minute away, but by, by car, they might be 30, yeah. 25, 30 There's minutes. no direct routes to no. anything so in the Ozarks. fire department down there, like, they, they got to drive a long way. So what that means for you is you need to be able to bridge that gap, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, well, 
boat injuries. So I'm like, I need to create a blade and control kit for boat docks. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And so, but, but Terry Barney, a good friend of mine, he goes, well, you need to find out, find a way to put a flotation device in there. Mm. That's a good idea. So we went out, we found a manufacturer that creates these little, it's the size of my mm-hmm, monster. Mm-hmm. That you, somebody's drowning out there. You take it, you throw it in the water. As soon as it hits the water, it activates, blows up into a life preserver. So we have these kits. It's our water safety station mm-hmm. that we're putting out and around. Um, we don't do a whole lot with the water training or anything like that. That's just one of our proprietary products. The mm-hmm. other thing that I've noticed going into the school districts mm-hmm. is a lot of times they're, the schools are like, all right, we have our AED which we started selling because of this product. We have our first aid kits. We have our uh, EpiPens. We have our Mm. Narcan. That's another training that we do too that I would strongly suggest for any public facilities is Mm -hmm. opioid recognition, Narcan administration. So we are seeing an uptick in opioid usage everywhere. And it's not just the people that you would think are using it. It's not the drug users. Right. Um, So we have our, the school districts have their opioid kits now. And then they have their bleeding control now. They're like, we don't want another enclosure. Can't you just sell me with one with everything in it? Mm-hmm. That's a really good idea. I saw that on your so side. I went out and looked and I couldn't find anything. So we created our own proprietary. It's called the Life Safety Station. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, if we're going to have it, I want to be able to sell AEDs. So we started selling AEDs, um, which obviously very important. Mm-hmm. And if you can get early defibrillation and CPR, you're ability to be saved go up drastically, mm-hmm. especially for a viable victim and Mm -hmm. most people don't realize there's only a couple rhythms that are actually a viable rhythm for somebody that has cardiac arrest Mm -hmm. and and aed will take care of two of two okay okay Okay. so very important that you have those on location the american heart association wants you to have a three minute response time anywhere in the building so Mm -hmm. um, that's a minute and a half down minute and a half back so we're creating these enclosures to mm-hmm. these i love that located yeah and i see those and and these are that's something i comment on when i'm doing audits of workplaces where they have uh many many companies have developed what you've just described kind of a one-stop emergency response station they might have a fire extinguisher aed first aid kit i don't think they have the trauma kits yet but they're going to at least all my clients are going to have those here in the very near future but everybody knows where they are Usually they're they're either well lit up or somehow they're illuminated or people know how to where to find them. They can go to them immediately. But just like what you said, OSHA's expectation is that employers be able to provide that initial response within three to four minutes. And so that's down to the station and back and get started, whether that be stopping the bleeding or AED or CPR, whatever that is. I, the the public have this false security blanket that oh the fire department's here so but let me tell you if most of your listeners are in the Omaha area I mean, no it's all over the country man country. we have a so, lot of Omaha people so but. in any major metropolitan city it's going to be very similar but um in mo- the average response time in a major metropolitan city is any if you're in Omaha if you're east of 72nd it's going to be four to five minutes because in these major metro the major populated areas the fire stations are more densely populated more densely well. yeah. You get out west of 680 here in Omaha or in the rural areas, that response time lengthens. So you're looking 10 to 12 minutes for, mm-hmm. for a location, time, mm-hmm. right? If you're in a volunteer organization, you got to remember that those 
volunteers, God bless them. We need them. Yeah. But they're sometimes they're coming from home. They're coming from work. They're driving to the station. Right. They're getting their equipment in the rigs and then they're driving back. Right. So it could be 15, 20, 25 minutes. So mm-hmm. it's very important that we self-rescue. I and totally agree. There's no other way to do it. And right. I see it every single day where you have early defibrillation, early CPR, you have bleeding stopped immediately. If you, if you know how to do the basics, these people have a, their survivability goes way mm-hmm. up. That includes this opioid pandemic now. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't get Narcan in your facility, not a big deal, but you've got to learn how to breathe for these patients. Mm-hmm. Because what, like you've heard before, the big issue with opioids is that the body stops breathing. It doesn't immediately stop the heart body just stops breathing so what that means is you've got to they've got to be somebody has to breathe for them Mm -hmm. so it's very simple you're laying them supine you're laying them flat you're opening up that airway you're going to use your cpr pocket mask and you're going to literally breathe for them if you don't have narcan until Mm -hmm. the first responders get there Mm -hmm. if you don't 10 12 minutes goes by you can that person might have brain damage by the time get them yeah. back wow. so it's just things to consider i think there's a false sense of security that the fire yeah. department's here and fire, yeah. we do some really great things absolutely but you've got to be able to save your own i think so many facilities that i have gone into while with osha or as a consultant when i ask them how do you handle emergencies what do you do in the event of an emergency somebody's you know in a confined space and they have a problem or we have a medical emergency or something well we call 911 and i'm i'm yes you call 911 but there is no guarantee that they will be able to be there within three to four minutes. What if they're on, on another call? What if they run into the traffic like I normally run into in Omaha? What if, you know, the scenarios are endless? And so as important as that call is to 911, I don't think, as you said, I think people have a false sense of security that we don't have to be able to do anything because the fire department will take care yeah, of us. Yeah. And while the intention is there to do that, the timing isn't necessarily always optimum. So you need to be prepared. Absolutely. And this is just simply about being prepared. We're not trying to scare anybody. We're not trying to, you know. And and the other thing that I want to bring up to your listeners too, because you're, these are a lot of the decision makers in their, their industry, right? So we, as the fire department, you hear me talk about this and stop the bleed. We don't have some magical GPS on how to get to your facility. So first thing that happens when you call 911, what's your emergency fire? You need fire EMS or police. I need EMS. Okay. What's your address? Very first question they ask you. So they get the rigs going and then they get more information. Right mm-hmm. well, here in Omaha. Anyways, we have two EMS dispatchers. So that's, that's two people handling the entire city. So, if we have a working fire going on on one side of town, they generally take one of those dispatchers and detach them to that fire. They're still kind of monitoring other things that are going on, but they their main thing that they're doing is listening for a mayday or anything that's going mm-hmm, on. In that mm-hmm. So that leaves potentially one person doing everything. So if you have an event like the Las Vegas shooting where there's 300 people injured in less than 10 minutes, they had 26 gunshot patients on hold at one point with that Las Vegas shooting. Mm-hmm. One of the issues we run into all the time here in Omaha is we show up to a building the size of this one that we're recording in, and we don't know which one of the 12 doors to go in. Mm-hmm. Public just thinks that we just magically know. We just, don't. <laughs> so right, as a strategic right. planning group, please yeah. send somebody out to get us. And I always think about this church up the street here, here in Omaha called King of Kings. They mm-hmm. do a fantastic job sending somebody at every single corner directing us where to go. Because okay. as medics, us showing up on location, now we can detach our brain about where in the heck are we going in this facility that we don't mm-hmm. know. 
on radio and dispatch and taking care of the computer and which trauma center is open today. Who's our, what's our protocol for this? Mm -hmm. Now I can figure, pay attention to that stuff. Not so much where are we going? Right. Because that is a stressor in, in, in our goal in any major situation. Now, don't get me wrong. Not everything that we handle is critical. We're, True. I mean, I, I ran a call a couple nights ago for chap lips, but <laughs> did you? Yeah. But, um, these critical calls, time is of the essence. Absolutely. We, if you can help us cut down on that lead time, that means sending somebody out to get us, giving us an escort within your facility, mm -hmm. having somebody uh, hold that elevator for us and on, up on the next floor, have somebody escort us up there, whatever it may be, help us help you. That's a great point, man. So I was just at a client yesterday and we were talking about their emergency action plan and assembly points, refuge points, how to get people there, how to go through the building and make sure everybody's accounted for, um, how to get people that might need assistance out of the building, all of those kind of things. And, you know, people ask me, because I, I tend to help people with OSHA regulatory requirements, does OSHA require that we do drills? And frankly, OSHA does not require that you do those drills. But if you don't do those drills, you have zero chance of success when the time comes. If you have not given thought to all of those things that you just described, you're going to have a, a problem. And so when you mentioned time, I know time is of time is money in the business world, in the construction world. But if you don't take the time to do these things, the consequences are going to be significant if you have an event. You know, bad outcomes are going to be significantly more consequential than taking 90 minutes to do this training or taking an hour once every three months to do a drill, something like that. So you got to get over that and realize that this is important. It needs to be done. And if we can respond well to a bad situation and minimize, you know, the, the damage, and that's, it's worth every minute Absolutely, spent, every yeah. dollar spent. I couldn't agree more. So this, we're gonna have to do this again, man. This is really important. And I, like I said, I hope you and your guys uh, are prepared for the onslaught because I think everybody needs to be doing this. Everybody, every company, every construction site, um, you know, I'm, when they're, they're about to build a, like a 46-story building, I think, downtown, I think Mutual of Omaha or somebody just announced they're going to build a 46-story. I remember when they built the First National Bank, when Kiewit built that, I was with OSHA at the time, and we talked about what if we have a guy get hurt on the 36th floor? You know, how do we get the fire department up there? How do we get the body down or the injured party down? Those are all things that go undiscussed too often, man. Sure. So you got a plan. And everybody, planning. everybody thinks that we as the fire department have answers for all this stuff and, and we don't have answers for everything. We are very resourceful individuals and we show up and we, we make it happen. We figure it out, but mm -hmm. sometimes figuring it out takes 10 minutes and you don't have that kind of time sometimes. So we need to be able to self-rescue. Right. And some of these trainings are, that's why they're so important. Yeah. Dustin, this, this is incredible stuff. First of all, thanks again for what you guys are doing. We appreciate it. Number two, this, this training and this information, these, these resources are incredibly valuable. So I'm going to continue to promote these and you're going to be getting lots of calls from my people because I'm going to insist that they get the training. Hopefully you're prepared for this. Oh yeah, uh, and all the celebrity that. that comes with you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thanks, Cam. I know Cam is on the first response team for this building, so he's going to need to go through this training as well. Maybe we can get the training here 
Although he, I think he's the only employee of Herd at Media, from what I can tell. <laughs> so um, thanks, everybody, for listening. This is incredibly valuable information. Talaco Safety Solutions. You can find them on the web. You can find them through the Omaha Fire Department. You can find them. Uh, give me a call, and I'll direct you to them. Um, but let's be prepared because inevitably someone is going to need this and we don't know who that's going to be. So yeah, and we always say at some point in your life, you may be that first responder. So Absolutely. Have the equipment, have the training. Exactly. God forbid it's your own family. It might be mine. And that, again, that's my motivation. Right. And we want you to be prepared. So thank you, man. Thank you. Do you have to go back on shifts soon or do you get any time uh, off? I'm on my days off. So are you? Yep. Oh, nice. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you. Have a good weekend, Cam. My wife is out in San Diego uh, visiting some friends, so my dog and I are going to lay on the couch and watch some old UFC tapes or something. Looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. Pay attention to this information, and we'll talk to you again soon. Later. A Hoda Media Production.